listen, there's a great work to be done. As soon as you win this court battle, you must deliver this message. Take advantage of this opportunity and declare a powerful message to this world. He expects more of us. He believes we can do more. Who's going to stop Christ? Who's going to stop Christ from getting this work done? This is Behind the Work. Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you live today from the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma. It is November 16th, about 11.33 a.m. Central Time. And in less than an hour and a half from now, Mr. Gerald Flurry will be getting married. So I just wanted to play this beautiful song that will be performed right at the start right before their wedding ceremony this afternoon. I just thought you'd really appreciate the beauty of this song. So we will go ahead and play this song right now. It's titled, All I Ask of You. Thank you. 
there really is almost an indescribable power to good music. Again, that's the song that will be played right before Mr. Flurry's wedding ceremony today. Obviously, a lot of rich symbolism and meaning in the words there. And it's not just we musical human beings who value music. Our creator does, too. You can look at a booklet that we offer for free at thetrumpet.com, which is titled How God Values Music, written by Philadelphia Church of God Music Director Ryan Malone. Certainly an enriching study. So today is a pretty big day, a really exciting day for the entire church. And at this point, I have to try to transition into my actual subject today. (laughs) It's been a while since we've looked into the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong, which is also available to you for free at thetrumpet.com. So I thought we would get into that again. And just remember, this book is a handbook for God's ministers. It's so full of instruction and stories that apply not just to the ministry, but to anyone who is trying to live the Christian way of life, anyone who is supporting God's work. These stories from almost a century ago really do apply directly to our lives in so many different ways. Here in chapter 28, which is titled Back into the Ministry, Mr. Armstrong discusses a few different experiences that are also recounted in uh, some of the church literature at thetrumpet.com. He has one story that is uh, written about again by Mr. Armstrong in his booklet, The Plain Truth About Healing. There is another story he talks about in this chapter, which is in the financial law you can't afford to ignore booklet. And I believe there's more content in here that is also talked about in other church materials. Um, I believe uh, the Biblical Manhood book also recounts some of this material. So this is material that is so helpful and so valuable, it's also in some of our other literature. At this point in the story, Mr. Armstrong has returned from that one-year newspaper trap. He thought God was providing an open door to uh, a more steady income for his family, but then he got stuck in this diversion. God had called him into the ministry, but that job was not offering him a steady stream of income. And that's why Mr. Armstrong did wrongly look elsewhere. But finally, after this year of going off track, he's able to extract himself from the newspaper business and get refocused on the ministry. The the brethren in Oregon still remembered Mr. Armstrong. They still loved his leadership and teaching style. And as soon as they had the money together again, they did rehire him. And they also provided for some of his necessities so that he could give his full attention to basically leading the people. 
But as was so often the case with Mr. Armstrong's life, this transition period was not without drama. Yet again, Mr. Armstrong faced fierce opposition. But like I said, it wasn't opposition from the members. It was from other ministers. You might remember before it was Mr. Taylor, who was secretly a Pentecostal. And every time that Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Taylor tried to have these evangelistic campaigns together, it didn't draw any fruits at all. There were never any results. Mr. Taylor catered to the Pentecostal crowd, which was really just there for a good time. They were there to yell. They were there to have a feeling, a good feeling, but not to ever take action. And then the few times where Mr. Armstrong was by himself actually led to results, actually led to him working with people who decided to commit their lives to God, people who actually decided to take action. James 1 verse 22 says, But be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Doers. Doers only. Those are the people God wants to attract. Those are the people God wants to bring into his work today, into his church even. Which is a step beyond just being involved in the work. So, Mr. Armstrong, remember, he did have to learn this lesson. He did have to learn to judge by fruits. Matthew 7, verse 20 says, By their fruits you shall know them. Now, it is important to make the distinction between conversions and simply delivering God's warning message as a witness. Certainly, the job of God's work today is not to try to convert millions and billions of people. That's simply not going to happen today. It's not the time yet for most people to commit to God. That time is coming, but it's not here yet. The primary job of God's work today is simply to warn. It's to give people a chance if they so choose to search for truth, to maybe stumble across this message, to make this message available enough so that people who are looking can find it. And then perhaps God can open the minds of a few of those people and draw them in. But again, it's not the choice of anyone to follow God. God makes that choice, and it's simply up to us to accept that calling once he is called once he has called us so mainly it is about warning in this work it's not all about converting people but think about the situation mr armstrong was in with these evangelistic campaigns where you have people coming in there basically disrupting the meetings so that they can yell and have a good time and none of those people ever ended up attending services in god's church No one, not one person, every time Mr. Armstrong was on these month-long campaigns with Mr. Taylor, and in the case of Chapter 28 here, Mr. Sam Oberg, 
there was not one person converted. Now, that would be a pretty obvious sign that something has gone horribly wrong and that God is not working through those other men. Remember, Mr. Armstrong, once he was by himself, once he was not with a Pentecostal-friendly minister, he did start getting fruits. He did start seeing results. He did start seeing people hear the message at these campaigns and take action. Now, Mr. Oberg was the type of man who was physically awe-inspiring. He was in great health in his 50s, great shape. He was also meticulously neat and clean. He had the specifically crafted mannerisms and speaking style that would attract great admiration from many people. Mr. Armstrong felt (laughs) noticeably inferior to Mr. Oberg. However, Mr. Armstrong eventually had to learn a lesson here. He writes, But I was to be disillusioned and to learn that a person who first appears to be too good to be true usually isn't. It's not about what's on the surface. It's not about the image that people try to put across. Now, if that was true back in the 1930s, when this originally took place, how much more true is that today? We live in an age where people value words over action. People value tone over deeds. That's why so many people get so offended by certain words and certain ways that words are said without even paying any attention to the fruits, to the results. We do live in a rather shallow society. But God does not look on the outward appearance. We should strive to (laughs) be hygienic and and well-kept, obviously. But that's not what God cares about most of all. He looks upon the heart. The example of King David makes that clear. Physically speaking, David would have been the very last choice to become a king of Israel out of all of his brothers. Yet, God chose him. God looks upon the heart. Mr. Armstrong learned this lesson with Mr. Oberg because, once again, just like he did with Mr. Taylor, Mr. Armstrong tried to start these evangelistic campaigns with Mr. Oberg. Mr. Oberg just wanted to have small meetings. He wasn't thinking big like Mr. Armstrong was. And Mr. Oberg also happened to be a closet Pentecostal, just like Mr. Taylor was. I don't know why (laughs) these types of men kept creeping in and uh, trying to throw Mr. Armstrong off track. Well, I do know why, but it is amazing that the same thing is happening all over again. So whenever they had these meetings, 
weeks in a row, months in a row, they would basically take turns speaking on on the different nights. No fruits at all. And once again, the minister, Mr. Armstrong, was paired with, decided to cater to the Pentecostal crowd. It got to the point where the Pentecostals were pretty much taking up 90% of all the seats in the meeting hall. And they would start yelling and getting emotional and excitable while Mr. Armstrong or Mr. Oberg was speaking. Particularly while Mr. Oberg was speaking since he actually uh, invited that behavior. Now, Mr. Oberg also focused a bit much, not just on a type of delivery that (laughs) invited this behavior, but he also just told stories over and over and over again. He didn't really rely too much on the Bible, but, but just on stories. Of course, there's a place for stories. Stories are a nice break from the flow of a message. They do have their purpose. But especially in the situation of maybe a biblical message, where is the depth? Are you, are you really getting past the surface if the message is just a chain of stories? That's the way that Mr. Oberg was talking. And some of the people who were there, even some of the Pentecostals, eventually got sick of this form of preaching. They got sick of some of the conduct that was becoming acceptable at these evangelistic campaigns. Mr. Armstrong eventually gave up preaching during these campaigns and turned them over entirely to Mr. Oberg. He saw once again that no fruits were being produced, and he didn't really think it was worth his time anymore. Now, during the midst of this, Mr. Armstrong's father died. He had a couple of different health trials at once, pretty much back to back. But before he died, he completely repented. He felt as though the weight of the world had been lifted off of him. Finally, he stopped looking down on others. Finally, he stopped being so self-righteous. This is, this is what Mr. Armstrong was saying about his father. Mr. Armstrong's father was such a good man that he tended to know he was a good man. But toward the end of his life, before he died, he experienced the wonders of true repentance, of really determining to change to change the way he thought, to change his desires, to see where he had been wrong in his mentality and in his actions. And once he realized that, he finally felt free. Now that really is an encouraging example. That's how we can all feel when we truly repent. Now, of course, it's not usually going to be our first choice, (laughs) naturally, carnally, to want to repent. But it really does, at the end of it all, feel quite good. It's just the 
the satisfying, peaceful feeling that comes with doing the right thing. Mr. Armstrong prayed all night, though, for his father to be healed, and he believed that God would heal him because God does promise in the Bible to heal. This is the story that's recounted in the Plain Truth About Healing booklet. Mr. Armstrong at first couldn't believe it because his father died anyway. Even though Mr. Armstrong had been praying with such intensity and for such a long time. This really taught Mr. Armstrong a valuable lesson. And he makes a point here that really applies to today. It is pretty common today to think of people who are skeptical or who cast doubt as rather intellectual. Agnostic people are pretty highly regarded today. You know, people who don't even know whether God exists. Those people, the ones who never see anything in black and white, who are all relative in their beliefs, those are the ones who are often seen as the smartest among us. Yet all they're doing is confusing themselves and confusing everyone else who admires them. Mr. Armstrong wrote about this. When one permits doubts to enter his thoughts and reasonings, he is on dangerous ground. He is thinking negatively. And then he says, you have to actually put in the work to prove what you believe and what you don't believe. You can't just go through life saying, oh, well, I have no idea about that. I have no idea why we're here on earth, what our purpose is. That does not make us smart. It does not make us sophisticated. We have to put in the work to get the facts and prove the truth. Mr. Armstrong wrote, this is not negative, but positive thinking and procedure. Doubting is not proving. Doubting is not intelligent. It is negative thinking about something one does not know enough about to warrant this form of unfounded disbelief. See, doubting is the wrong way to go about things. It's just as bad as being sure of yourself when you're totally wrong. <laughs> Those are both wrong. Mr. Armstrong did realize, though, what healing really means and that God still would keep this promise even after his father had died. Hebrews 11 gives plenty of examples of people who followed God yet didn't receive the promises during their physical lives. And yet the Bible promises they will still live again and receive those promises one day. That's exactly what will be the case with all who live and die. They'll have another chance. The Bible talks all about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's different resurrections, and in the resurrection is so much hope. 
we can't just keep our minds focused so much on this physical life that we forget what comes next. The resurrection is a great hope. We have to remember that God is a spiritual being. He has lived for all eternity. And to him, a physical life is hardly a blip on the radar. Physical existence is nothing compared to his much more real and permanent spiritual existence. The type of existence that he's offering eventually to every human being who has ever lived. Now, Mr. Armstrong concludes this chapter with some more hilarious descriptions of the Pentecostal, <laughs> uh, basically, worship practices. Uh, definitely <laughs> worth reading. There's one point where a lady goes up on the stage while Mr. Oberg is talking and just starts slamming on the piano. And then another lady in the crowd just starts sort of spasming around and and kind of out of control, just throwing her arms everywhere in what I guess you could call somewhat of a dance. And yet that really is not edifying to anyone. No one's learning anything from that. There's not much purpose to something like that. Mr. Armstrong described this as the lust of the flesh, and this is exactly the way that some of these Pentecostals who got sick of how these campaigns were being run also described it. So here again, Mr. Armstrong is coming under attack by another minister who's plotting against him, who's trying to turn the congregation against him, and yet that rival minister is producing no fruit at all. We have to look at the fruits. We can't get deceived by the surface by the appearance, we have to look upon the heart. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work. You've been listening to Behind the Work. Email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for a new episode each Monday at 1130 a.m. Central Time 